Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hey listeners, I just wanted to let you know that this is part two of a two-part episode on the mysteries surrounding the alleged underground alien base in Dulce, New Mexico. If you haven't checked out part one yet, I encourage you to do so. We'll be right here waiting for you. I also wanted to mention that this episode contains descriptions of animal mutilations. If you find those things disturbing or have young ears around, you may want to check out a different episode. But with that being said, if you're all caught up, let's go. On June 13, 1976, a New Mexico State police officer named Gabe Valdez received a call to investigate an unusual death on a local ranch, owned by a man named Manuel Gomez. The rancher was calling to report one of his cows had been killed. Any rancher knows cows will die from time to time. It's all part of the price of doing business. Accidents can occur while cattle are in the fields. Diseases can spread and... There have been occasions where lightning strikes have even been known to kill cows standing out in the open. But this dead animal was unlike anything either Manuel Gomez or Gabe Valdez had ever seen before in their lives. The day before Gomez had driven out in the early morning hours to check on his cattle when he spotted one of his cows lying unmoving on its side. He pulled up near to the carcass and he only managed to take a few steps outside of his truck before he reared back and began gagging. There was a perfect circular cut where the cow's genitalia should have been. What was also bizarre was that there was no blood to be found anywhere around the animal's body. Although animal attacks were rare in these parts, Gomez had seen what coyotes and other predators could do, and this wasn't it. Other animals would have been messy and torn the cow to pieces. These cuts in the cow looked precise, even surgical. Officer Gabe Valdez had never seen anything like it either. He was shocked by the seeming surgical precision of the cow's wounds, as well as the complete lack of blood anywhere. When he crouched down over the cow to get a better look, he noticed what appeared to be a large puncture mark from a needle on the cow's lower chest. Manuel Gomez was even more confused, though, because there were additional wounds on the cow that had not been there the day before. Yesterday, the cow had only been missing its genitalia. Now the cow's left ear and tongue were missing as well. It was as if someone had come back in the middle of the night and finished the job. As disturbing as the scene was, Officer Gabe Valdez was secretly a little excited by it as well. The area Valdez patrolled was relatively quiet and most of the crimes he dealt with were things like bar fights and petty thefts. But this was a real honest-to-goodness mystery, and one he vowed that he was going to get to the bottom of. Recently, the police station had begun receiving reports from several locals who had seen strange lights in the sky at night. 
These lights moved around in unusual ways and didn't appear to be attached to a helicopter or airplane. Many of these lights had been spotted over the mountains of Mundo Ridge, which weren't far from Manuel Gomez's ranch. Gabe Valdez wondered if these reports might be connected in some way to the strange animal mutilation. This was a question that Valdez would continue to ponder over the next 16 months and beyond. During that time, many more reports would pour in of mysterious cattle mutilations throughout the state. Valdez personally investigated 23 such cases around Dulce, New Mexico, and elsewhere throughout the northern part of the state. Several of these cases were accompanied by reports of strange lights in the sky around the same time the dead cows were discovered. For two years, Valdez continued to document these cattle mutilation incidents, but he never made any real progress in solving the mystery. For the most part, all Valdez could do was show up after the cow was dead and file a report. That is until he caught his first big break in early 1978. That was when Valdez got a call from Raleigh Tafoya, the police chief of the Hickoria Apache Nation. The Hickoria were a tribe who lived on a reservation in the northern part of New Mexico that encompassed most of Dulce. Tafoya was calling to report another cattle mutilation. At first, Gabe Valdez sighed when he heard this news. By now, he assumed it would be too late for him to do much else other than drive out to the scene and look at another dead cow. He told Chief Tafoya he'd be out in the morning, but Chief Tafoya insisted that Valdez get out there right now. You see, normally the strange lights in the sky would be long gone by the time one of the dead cows was found. Only for some reason this time, the strange lights were still there, and they were hovering over one of the mutilated cows this very minute. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from my secret podcasting studio on the planet Nibiru, and this is The Conspirators. Upon hearing the news that one of the strange lights was still hovering in the sky, Officer Gabe Valdez ran out of his house so fast that he forgot his badge and gun. He put the pedal to the floor and sped as quickly as he could to Chief Tafoya's house. By then, the chief had called a few of his tribal police officers to come see the strange orange light bobbing in the sky as well. Valdez couldn't believe his eyes. The way this orange light was moving, it couldn't possibly be a normal helicopter or plane. All the other officers jumped into the patrol cars and sped toward the light. Valdez got in his radio and ordered the other officers to shut off their headlights so that whoever was piloting the thing wouldn't see them coming. As Valdez raced toward the light, he felt his pulse quicken and his heart beat rapidly in his chest. He was finally on the verge of getting some answers to the mystery that he had been obsessed with over the past two years. But then, just as Valdez was about to pass directly under the strange orange light, it suddenly blinked out and vanished. Valdez slammed his hand on his steering wheel in frustration. Then, just as he turned his car around, he spotted the light again about a mile away. Valdez gunned the engine and grabbed his radio as he told the other officers where the light had gone now. But every time Valdez or one of the other officers drew near to the light's position, it would blink out and reappear somewhere else. It was as if someone was toying with them. After the same thing occurred several times, Valdez began to wonder if whoever was controlling the light was listening in on their radio chatter. So he got an idea. He told the other officers over the radio that they should try speaking to each other in Apache. This seemed to work too. 
because this time the lights stopped dancing around and eluding the officers. Soon the cops were able to surround the light from multiple sides. For a brief moment, Valdez felt as if he were on the verge of something big. He got out of his car and used his bullhorn to order the craft's pilot to land, but it remained hovering in the air between two large pine trees. Valdez got on the radio and ordered the other officers to shoot the object down, but their bullets did nothing. Eventually, the object just slowly drifted away. Valdez and the other officers could do nothing other than to watch it drift away into the distance. But that wasn't the end of the night's excitement. Later on, Valdez drove home in frustration, knowing there was nothing more he could do to get to the bottom of the mystery. But as he was driving down a lonely stretch of highway, his radio began to crackle, then emit a high-pitched squeal that nearly made him jump out of his seat. Suddenly, the car was bathed in a bright light from above. He peered up just in time to see a circular craft ringed with lights flying directly overhead. He felt as if it were taunting him. While all this was going on about 150 miles away just outside of Albuquerque, another man was having his own struggles with mysterious lights in the sky. His name was Paul Benowitz, and back in 1976, around the same time that Officer Gabe Valdez had begun investigating all the cattle mutilations in his area, Benowitz had begun seeing strange lights of his own in the skies over nearby Kirtland Air Force Base. Night after night, Benowitz would stand out on his deck and be amazed as these same lights would rise up over the base, then shoot off towards some distant mountains at unbelievable speeds. Benowitz is often described as an electronics genius. He was certainly a very smart individual and a successful businessman. He earned a bachelor's degree from Arizona State. During World War II, Paul worked as a radio electronics engineer for the Coast Guard. From there, he continued working as a radio engineer for a few years until he moved to New Mexico in 1953 with his wife, Sydney. He started out working in sales for a company called Galton Industries before eventually branching out on his own and starting his own company. In 1966, he acquired the rights to a humidity sensor from Sandia National Laboratories. After that, he founded his own electronics firm, Thunder Scientific. His biggest clients were NASA and the American military, which is why he moved to a house and built a lab so close to Kirtland Air Force Base. It was because of Paul's background as an amateur pilot as well as his proximity to the base that he became familiar with most standard aircraft, which is what made it all the more confusing when Paul began seeing strange lights hovering over the base that couldn't possibly be attached to any sort of known aircraft. Throughout his life, Paul Benowitz had been interested in UFOs. During the 1970s, he joined Arizona's chapter of the Civilian UFO Investigation Group, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO for short. Throughout his life, Paul was naturally inclined to believe in the paranormal, but he also had his practical and scientific side. He knew that Kirtland Air Force Base was where the U.S. military tested many top-secret aircraft and weapons systems. So it remained possible these strange lights were connected to some advanced weapon system he wasn't aware of. And yet Paul was still very inclined to believe in extraterrestrial visitors. These lights he was seeing and filming at night were so strange he didn't think there was any way they could be connected to any sort of terrestrial craft. But he decided before he jumped to any conclusions he would perform some tests to try to determine the light's origins. He put together some equipment that could pick up radio transmissions from Kirtland Air Force Base. Kirtland was one of the largest of its kind in the United States. Not only were all sorts of weapons testing and flight training conducted here, but it was also the headquarters of the Air Force Nuclear Weapons Center which meant the base was not only kept under high security, but it was also under close scrutiny 
by a number of UFO groups since historically there had been several occasions where UFOs appeared to be attracted to U.S. nuclear military facilities. When Paul activated his radio equipment and began scanning the airwaves, he was surprised when he began picking up what sounded like some sort of radio chatter. But if it was some sort of communication, then it didn't sound the least bit human. Meanwhile, the mysterious cattle mutilations had continued across New Mexico. Rancher Manuel Gomez, who had phoned in the first such case that Officer Gabe Valdez ever investigated, had lost a dozen more cows since then. This was becoming a serious financial strain to the rancher, as it did for the many other ranchers throughout the American Southwest who had experienced these bizarre cattle mutilations. In fact, so many of these cattle mutilations occurred throughout the state that hundreds of constituents began calling the offices of U.S. Senator Harrison Schmidt of New Mexico demanding answers. Schmidt responded by organizing a conference on cattle mutilations that was to be held at the Albuquerque Public Library on April 20, 1979. One of the speakers that day was Officer Gabe Valdez, who recounted the details of his ongoing investigations. Paul Benowitz was also in attendance that day because he had become convinced, like Officer Valdez, that all these mysterious UFO sightings were somehow connected to the reports of cattle mutilations. After the conference was over, Paul nervously approached Officer Valdez and introduced himself. He wanted to trade notes with Valdez. He told the officer all about the videos he had shot of strange lights over Kirtland Air Force Base, as well as recordings he had made of what sounded like alien conversations. Officer Valdez didn't know what to make of Paul Benowitz at first. The man seemed nervous and skittish. He was also highly skeptical of Paul Benowitz's story, but considering the man said he had recorded evidence, he decided to hear him out. Over time, these two men would strike up a genuine friendship. In response to public pressure, the FBI assigned a retired agent named Kenneth Rommel to investigate the hundreds of cattle mutilation reports that had poured in over the years. At first, Officer Gabe Valdez and Paul Benowitz were excited by the prospect of having the FBI join the investigation. They invited Rommel to come out to Dulce and see the evidence for himself. But Rommel reportedly preferred to stay home for the most part and do his investigating from his office. One story claims that on the only occasion Rommel ever went out to the scene of a reported cattle mutilation, the man threw up at the site. In June 1980, Rommel issued his final report. He concluded that there was nothing unusual about any of these cattle mutilations, and that all the so-called surgical cuts were a combination of animal predation and the result of the skin splitting as the animal carcasses bloated in the sun. He also said that it was common for blood to pool inside the lowest portions of the animal's bodies, which he said would explain why so little blood was ever actually found on the ground. Then on May 6, 1980, state police in Cimarron, New Mexico received a report from a woman calling herself Myrna Hansen, in which she claimed to have not only personally witnessed a cattle mutilation, but during the incident, the extraterrestrial visitors abducted her as well. Police in Cimarron alerted Gabe Valdez to Myrna Hansen since he had gained a reputation as the cattle mutilation guy. Valdez had always been skeptical that the strange lights in the sky and cattle mutilations were the work of alien beings. He still thought all these strange occurrences were some sort of top-secret U.S. government experiments. But Valdez remained open-minded and he thought it might be worthwhile to include someone in his investigation who was much more of a hardcore believer in aliens. Namely, his new friend, Paul Benowitz. Paul jumped at the chance to meet Myrna Hansen, and even invited her and her eight-year-old son to stay in his home while they conducted their investigation. 
Paul suggested they also bring in the assistance of Professor Leo Sprinkle of the University of Wyoming. Sprinkle was a psychologist and an expert in hypnotic regression therapy who had worked with APRO before to help contactees retrieve lost memories of their abduction experiences. The use of hypnotic regression is highly controversial. There are many skeptics who say that these hypnosis sessions don't actually work to dredge up repressed memories, but rather open up the minds of the subjects to suggestion, paving the way to creating brand new false memories instead. Early on, Paul offered up the odd theory that he thought the aliens might still be in some sort of radio contact with Myrna Hansen's mind. So he insisted that they conduct their hypnosis sessions inside his Lincoln Town car parked in the family garage with the windows covered and with aluminum foil. He believed that the heavy tin foil could block out the alien mind control signals. Dr. Sprinkle balked at this outlandish suggestion, but he ultimately agreed to go along with it, as did Myrna Hansen. Myrna said that on May 5, 1980, she had been driving home with her son late at night following a trip to Oklahoma, when she spotted a glowing UFO hovering over a field. Myrna and her son pulled over and got out of the car to get a better look. She was astonished when she saw a beam of blinding white light come shining down from a craft over a cow standing in a field. Then the cow began levitating up into the craft. The next thing Myrna recalled, she and her son were sitting back inside their car. But when she checked the clock, she realized that hours had gone by, and she had no memory of what had occurred during that time. It was only after Myrna Hansen's hypnotic regression sessions did she recall what happened during her missing time. Myrna said that suddenly the craft stopped in the middle of abducting the cow and appeared to notice her. She said she tried to grab her son and get back in the car, but the next thing she remembered was the beam of light moving toward her rapidly. Myrna said she was abducted and taken deep underground to a secret military base where she was subjected to a number of painful and invasive experiments by a group of gray alien beings with large heads and oversized black eyes. Myrna couldn't say exactly where this base was, but she believed it to be somewhere underground in northern New Mexico. At one point, she recalled one of the aliens communicating telepathically with her and apologizing. He said that her abduction had been a mistake. She remembered seeing large vats containing human and animal body parts preserved in some sort of liquid. The last thing Murder remembered was the aliens implanting a device inside her that could control her mind and monitor her thoughts. This last detail, of course, completely clicked with Paul Benowitz's belief about alien technology. The question is, was Paul right or... Did he somehow influence Myrna into believing this under hypnosis? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Dr. Sprinkle scheduled another hypnosis session for June 3rd, 1980. He was excited to delve deeper into Myrna's memories and see what else she could recall. But when Paul Benowitz opened the door, Dr. Sprinkle was immediately alarmed by the man's appearance. Paul was a mess. His eyes were wild and his clothes were rumpled as if he'd been sleeping in them. He smelled as if he hadn't bathed in days. The most concerning part, though, was that Paul answered the door with a pistol holstered on his hip and he was carrying a rifle. 
Dr. Sprinkle took a step back, but Paul grabbed him and pulled him in close. He whispered in the doctor's ear that it wasn't safe. They're watching us, he said. Dr. Sprinkle was afraid as Paul Benowitz dragged him into the house. Paul scanned all around the street to make sure the doctor hadn't been followed before he slammed the door shut. Dr. Sprinkle couldn't believe how fast Paul's mental state had deteriorated. He'd been concerned about the man's paranoia during their last meeting, but this was next level. And it had apparently spread to Myrna Hansen as well. It was obvious Myrna hadn't been sleeping either. She couldn't focus and she rambled constantly. She was barely able to put together a coherent sentence. The hypnosis session this time was difficult and fruitless. Myrna struggled to remember anything of her encounter. Paul blamed the aliens, claiming they had somehow managed to overcome his tinfoil shields. Dr. Sprinkle felt uneasy the entire time. He rushed through the session and fled in a taxi as quickly as he could. Paul was angry at Dr. Sprinkle for abandoning him, but he refused to give up on Myrna Hansen, so he reached out to another hypnotist named James Harder. Harder was a professor of engineering at the University of California, Berkeley. He was also an amateur UFO researcher who specialized in hypnotic regression with alleged alien abductees. Back in 1975, Harder hypnotized Travis Walton, one of the most famous alien abduction stories in history, which I'll cover in a future episode. Benowitz and Harder pushed Myrna Hansen so much in their hypnosis sessions that by August 1980, Myrna broke off all contact with them and moved to Northern California. From there, she refused to talk anymore to anyone about her abduction experience. This didn't dissuade Paul Benowitz one bit. He continued filming the lights hovering over Kirtland Air Force Base and recording the strange radio chatter he picked up. He shared what he gathered with Gabe Valdez, who was becoming increasingly worried about his friend's mental state. Paul Benowitz considered himself a patriot, and he was becoming increasingly worried about what the aliens were doing around Kirtland Air Force Base. So he did what he thought was right, and he phoned the base's security commander and told him everything he'd observed. The commander was alarmed. Not because he was worried about aliens, but because an apparently paranoid civilian was filming what sounded to him like top-secret projects that were being conducted at the base. He assigned Paul's case to Special Agent Richard Doty of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, or OSI. The OSI was the Air Force's criminal and security investigation branch, and they had been in operation since 1948. Doty called Paul on the phone and asked him to describe what he'd been seeing over Kirtland Air Force Base. Doty would have liked to have written Paul Benowitz off as a simple paranoid nut, but Paul was considered a respected scientist by his Air Force contacts who worked with him and his company Thunder Scientific. Even more important, though, he was concerned that some of the phenomena Paul was describing involved top-secret military tests that were being conducted at the base. Paul Benowitz and Richard Doty first met at Thunder Scientific, where Paul gave the OSI agent a tour of the facility. Paul later agreed to show Doty around his house so he could see his radio equipment. Because Doty didn't have the technical expertise to evaluate Paul's equipment, he brought along physicist Lou Miles, the chief scientist and director of Kirtland's Test and Evaluation Center. When Doty and Miles arrived at Paul's house, there were no outward signs the paranoia Dr. Sprinkle had witnessed. Paul appeared stable and rational. Miles was impressed with Paul's sophisticated surveillance setup. He had built a monitoring station with oscilloscopes, energy meters, and a giant reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder capable of recording 24 hours a day. While the physicist kept Paul busy, Doty went around surreptitiously snapping photos of Paul's equipment. 
Paul played his highest quality audio and video recordings for the men. He was thrilled the Air Force was finally taking him seriously. Paul gave the men copies of still frames he had taken from some of his 8mm footage of lights in the sky over Kirtland. Doty took everything Paul had given him and presented it to the base commander to assess whether there was any security risk. The commander was alarmed by what Doty showed him. He was worried this could be a serious security risk and open up the possibility of having military secrets stolen by the Soviets. So he phoned Paul and invited him to come to the base and give a briefing to senior personnel on November 10, 1980. Paul was thrilled to share what he knew. He met with a group of high-ranking military officials and scientists from the Air Force and OSI. He showed them all the evidence he'd recorded up to that point. He also described the strange radio signals he'd begun picking up. The men all appeared suitably impressed with Paul's technical know-how and scientific methods. The problem was, up until this point, Paul had been holding back one important detail that he hadn't even shared with Richard Doty. It was only now that Paul dropped the bombshell that he believed these strange lights and signals he'd been picking up were the work of extraterrestrial visitors. As soon as Paul started talking about aliens, you could feel the palpable change in the atmosphere in the room. Every one of the officials immediately changed their tune and began looking at Paul Benowitz as a deluded nut. Soon, Paul packed up his files and prepared to leave the meeting dejected. But then, one of the Air Force majors told him that, while the Air Force couldn't officially sanction his investigation, they would still fund and encourage him to continue. Paul was elated. He immediately phoned Gabe Valdez and told him the good news. Valdez remained skeptical that any high-ranking military officials would actually sanction Paul's investigation into alien visitors. In fact, Valdez was becoming increasingly convinced the people behind the strange lights and cattle mutilations were the U.S. military. On June 4, 1981, Officer Valdez investigated another cattle mutilation at Manuel Gomez's ranch. This was a familiar scene at this point. The cow was missing several body parts and organs, and the scene was devoid of blood. But this time, Valdez discovered some additional evidence that only fueled his suspicions. Near the carcass, Valdez found some packets of radar chaff. These are packs of aluminum shavings that are dispersed by military stealth aircraft in order to disrupt radar signals. Normally, these tiny aluminum shavings are spread over such a wide area they remain undetectable. But Valdez theorized that one of the planes must have malfunctioned and left some of the larger packets behind. Gabe Valdez told Paul Benowitz about this telling piece of evidence. Paul immediately came up with a theory of his own, that the aliens must be working directly with the U.S. military. This theory for Paul became even more certain when about a month later he received a phone call from a UFO researcher named Bill Moore, who said he wanted to meet face-to-face. -face. Moore said he had some important information he needed to share. At the time, Bill Moore was a big name in the UFO community, having co-written the first major book ever written about the Roswell UFO crash. Prior to the book's publication, Roswell had become an almost forgotten anecdote in history. But Bill Moore and Charles Burletts' book reignited the public's fascination with the alleged UFO crash. In fact, most of the major details you've likely heard about Roswell originated from their book. Paul met Bill Moore at Thunder Scientific. When Moore got there, Paul cranked up a radio for maximum volume and pulled the man into one of his supply closets so they couldn't be overheard. Once they were inside the closet and away from any sort of covert listening devices, Moore handed Paul a dossier titled Project Aquarius. 
This was an official Air Force intelligence document that was all about Paul. The document provided a detailed scientific analysis of Paul's photos and 8mm film he had provided the Air Force, and it concluded that some of the images Paul had captured were legitimate, unidentified aerial objects. In other words, the Air Force believed they were real. What was even more alarming, though, was a notation that mentioned Paul was being monitored by NASA, who requested that all future evidence be forwarded to them. Although Paul should have been happy to learn that U.S. intelligence was taking his work seriously, it was still increasingly concerning because this document indicated that Paul was under constant surveillance as well. This turned out to actually be true and not just paranoia. Paul really was under surveillance, not just by the OSI, but by the National Security Agency as well. Richard Doty and other individuals in the U.S. military intelligence had decided the best course of action was to mess with Paul Benowitz's already fragile mental state and in the meantime spread disinformation throughout the UFO community, and Bill Moore became a big part of it. Back in the 1980s, Moore was contacted by an agent from the U.S. government who only identified himself as Falcon. This man claimed to represent a group of intelligence agents who wanted to share the truth about what the government knew about UFOs with a legitimate researcher like Bill. In exchange, though, the agent wanted something in return. He wanted Bill to occasionally feed false information to the UFO community. Bill was confused by this. If the government wanted to reveal what they knew about aliens, then why did they want to feed false information? The agent calling himself Falcon said that some UFO researchers were getting too close to some top-secret government projects, and it was important to discredit these researchers in order to protect national security. Bill didn't like it, but he ultimately agreed to this Faustian deal. He felt terrible about feeding false information to his friends and colleagues, but... He thought the ends justified the means if it meant finally learning the truth about UFOs. Moore later met with Richard Doty who told him he wanted his help in discrediting Paul Benowitz, whose research had caused him to stumble onto some top-secret military projects. It was Doty who gave Moore the folder labeled Project Aquarius, and it was Doty who continued to play mind games with Paul Benowitz feeding into his paranoia. Over time, Paul Benowitz, Gabe Valdez, and Bill Moore began taking road trips around the mountains of Dulce, New Mexico, looking for evidence of the top-secret underground base described by Myrna Hansen in her hypnosis sessions. Richard Doty was delighted by this news because it meant Paul's attention was drawn away from Kirtland Air Force Base. In December 1981, Richard Doty invited Paul to meet him at Kirtland. They met on a landing pad where a military helicopter was sitting there ready for takeoff. Paul asked Doty where they were going but Doty just said it was a surprise. Doty had them fly over Dulce's Archuleta Mesa. He pointed down at the ground and Paul was shocked by what he saw. There, just past a winding dirt road, was a series of storage tanks, jeeps, and equipment sheds. There were also a number of large vents spewing out white steam. Paul couldn't believe it. This was the evidence of the underground base he'd been looking for. That night, Paul excitedly phoned Valdez and told him he knew where the underground base was. Over the past few months, Paul and Valdez had been advising a news crew from Albuquerque who were putting together a documentary about cattle mutilations. Paul thought the crew would be the perfect people to help reveal to the world the secret underground military base he'd been searching for. But when Paul and Valdez led the news crew to the location Doty had showed him, they were suddenly confronted by three black helicopters that landed nearby blocking the road. A group of heavily armed Delta Force soldiers got out of the chopper, 
A Delta Force commander told Paul, Valdez, and the news crew they were trespassing on government property and ordered them to leave immediately. Although the news crew left without recording any evidence of the secret base, Paul was still convinced he had enough evidence gathered to reveal the vast conspiracy involving aliens and the U.S. military working in collusion together. He called this conspiracy Project Beta. He compiled all this research and sent it to some of the major UFO research groups, including APRO and the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON. He also mailed copies of his research to New Mexico's U.S. Senators and to the President of the United States. After that, Paul waited for a response. A few weeks later, he got one. Just not what he expected. He received a letter with the official seal of the office of the President, but when he opened it, he was disappointed to read a generic stock letter stating that the United States Air Force had investigated UFOs under Project Blue Book between 1948 to 1969 and had concluded there was no evidence these unidentified aircraft posed any threat to the United States, nor was there any evidence they came from outer space. Paul was even more disappointed by the response he received throughout the UFO community. No one wanted to publish or be the least bit associated with his research. Bill Moore knew why, too. He had read Paul's Project Beta report, and it not only presented very little credible evidence, it also sounded like the ravings of an unhinged lunatic's. And that was for good reason, too. You see, Richard Doty had pulled off a masterful con job. The so-called alien base that he showed to Paul was actually a bunch of surplus military equipment that he had gotten the go-ahead to set up in order to create the illusion of a secret base near Archuleta Mesa. The Delta Force officers who showed up to scare off the news crew had actually been conducting training exercises nearby. Doty had convinced the army to let him borrow some of the troops to show up and make his mirage more believable. You know how Paul believed he was being covertly surveilled? Well, he actually was. The NSA had moved into the vacant house across the street from Paul's home. They secretly broke in and replaced his computer with a duplicate containing secret monitoring software they wrote. It turns out the coded alien messages Paul had been receiving were actually sent to him by the NSA. These messages proved difficult, but not impossible for Paul to decode. They led him to believe that Paul was one of the few human beings they would communicate with. They also let him in on the fact that they planned on taking over the Earth. Paul purchased an airplane to conduct his own aerial surveillance over Archuleta Mesa. In 1985, during one of his flights over Archuleta Mountain, he thought he spotted what appeared to be a downed aircraft among some broken trees. He told Richard Doty what he had seen, and Doty told him that what Paul saw was a nuclear-powered UFO that had crashed in the area. He warned Paul not to attempt to get any closer because the radiation it emitted was too dangerous. It's difficult to say whether Paul actually saw a downed aircraft or not based on what we know of his mental state. But if he did, it's likely it was either an experimental stealth bomber or perhaps even an early unmanned drone. Despite Richard Doty's warnings about deadly radiation, Paul convinced Gabe Valdez to join him on the hunt for the downed UFO a few weeks later. Armed with a Geiger counter, the two men headed off in the mountains looking for the downed UFO but they couldn't find it anywhere. Nor did they find any signs of the radiation described by Richard Doty. As time wore on, Doty continued to feed into Paul's paranoia. At one point, he sent Paul a letter that he claimed was written by an intelligence agent with the NSA who said he was going to tell Paul the truth about the underground alien base. The letter claimed that the downed aircraft Paul saw was a top-secret stealth plane built with alien technology. According to the letter, deep beneath the Mesa was a large underground facility where the United States government worked in cooperation with a group of peaceful alien greys 
who shared their advanced technology. The letter went on to say that there was another hostile alien race on Earth that was out to destroy humanity. It was this hostile race that shot the stealth aircraft out of the sky. Paul read this letter with growing horror, realizing humanity was on the verge of going to war with an advanced alien race. This news pretty much drove Paul Benowitz over the edge. Bill Moore, Gabe Valdez, and other friends and family were all shocked by the rapid downward spiral Paul Benowitz fell into. Everyone Paul knew, including Richard Doty, asked him to give up his crusade against the aliens. But Paul was a man obsessed. He began to see himself as the lone savior of the entire human race. By August 1988, Paul began arming himself with multiple guns and knives. He lost a tremendous amount of weight. He was smoking a pack of cigarettes every hour. He told people he thought the aliens were coming into his home at night and injecting him with something that made him drive out into the desert at night. In fact, Richard Doty and Bill Moore both saw needle marks on Paul's arms. As Paul's paranoia intensified, he began accusing his own wife of being controlled by the extraterrestrials. After an incident in which he attempted to barricade himself in his home using sandbags, his family had him committed to the mental unit of the Presbyterian Anna Kaysman Hospital, where he remained under observation for a month. This news finally proved too much for Bill Moore, who deeply regretted his involvement in causing Paul's mental breakdown, as well as betraying the trust of his friends and colleagues in the UFO community. In 1989, he publicly admitted before a packed audience at the Mutual UFO Network conference that he had been feeding them disinformation. They practically booed him off the stage. There had long been rumors that the U.S. intelligence community was spreading disinformation in order to discredit legitimate UFO research. But now this was proof positive. That's also something we should all keep in mind even today when some news report appears about the U.S. government revealing details about unidentified aerial phenomena or supposed U.S. intelligence agents appearing before Congress talking about aliens. After Paul Benowitz was hospitalized, Richard Doty was transferred to Germany. It seems as if his superiors wanted to get him as far away from the fallout of his actions as possible. Gabe Valdez decided he'd had enough of the UFO investigations as well. He soon requested a transfer to Albuquerque. Although he remained open to answering any questions anyone had about cattle mutilations, he pretty much gave up investigating any sort of strange phenomena after that. In 2013, Gabe's son Greg wrote a book about his father's investigations. In it, he theorizes that the mind games being played on Paul Benowitz may have gone even deeper than anyone knew. He thinks that even Myrna Hansen might have been a government plant in order to drum up belief in the underground alien base at Dulce, New Mexico. Paul Benowitz died a broken man in 2003. As for Richard Doty, he was removed from the OSI and eventually retired from the Air Force. From there, he went on to work for the New Mexico State Police before retiring from that job as well. Lately, he makes regular appearances at UFO conferences and on UFO documentaries talking about his role in spreading disinformation for the United States Air Force. Today, Richard Doty claims he regrets any role he might have played in Paul Benowitz's mental breakdown especially because now he says that Paul was right about a lot of things, including the fact that aliens were real. Doty says that while working for the OSI, he was once shown a briefing film that detailed what the government really knew about UFOs. Doty says the film's narrator explained that the UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico really did happen, and that several dead aliens and one live specimen were recovered. Doty now claims that 80% of what is believed about UFOs is real and only about 20% is government disinformation. The problem is, Doty's story hasn't always remained consistent over the years. 
and he has been at the heart of so many lies and cover-ups it's impossible to believe anything he says anymore. There's an old adage that says, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thanks so much to Alan, Adrian, and Alexander. You're all A-pluses in my book. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes, the latest of which will be dropping very soon. I also wanted to direct you to my brand spanking new YouTube channel, which I call Dark Chronicles. I've been having a blast creating videos around some similarly scary topics I cover on this podcast. It's the next evolution of the show, and I really hope you'll head over there and subscribe, comment, and hit the bell icon to be alerted whenever I post new content. I'm really hoping I can make Dark Chronicles as big a success as this podcast has been, and I really hope you'll help me on my journey. If you're interested in checking out my YouTube channel or Patreon, I'll put a link in the show notes. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us along on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. In fact, if you check out my TikTok and Instagram feeds, you'll see that I've been posting some really neat short-form content there as well. If you've already checked out my YouTube, TikTok, or Instagram, can I also ask you to please comment and let me know what you think? You can even send me an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let me know how I'm doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.